Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpen Radio covered the phenomenon of wage theft, chatted with an artist from Venezuela about the turmoil in her nation, and heard about two prominent Chicago film producers about the industry in our city. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for November 3rd, 2017. Radio Free chatted with Don Chartier about the phenomenon of wage theft, employers who take advantage of hourly workers. The problem is particularly severe in Illinois and costs workers an astonishing $30 billion a year. Chartier spoke about how to organize workers and how to fight against this pernicious problem. Radio Free with John Daly and Jamie Trecker airs every Tuesday drive time at 4 p.m. Welcome back to Radio Free Bridgeport on WLPN, LP Chicago, 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio, and we have a guest on the show today talking about a company and an app that is looking at making sure people are paid a fair wage. The app is Our Voice and Don Chartier. Welcome. Thanks very much for having me on the show. So tell us a little bit about how you started with the idea. Obviously, this application um, is, is tracking people's wages and making sure that they are appropriately paid a fair wage, but uh, tell us a little bit about its inception. Yeah, uh, so a couple of years ago, I was flying back from South by Southwest, and I had attended a bunch of the sessions there, interactive sessions that were kind of focused on how we can make the world a better place, et cetera. And so I was kind of filled with that and uh, was flying back uh, on the airplane. I was reading a Harper's Magazine article called The Spy Who Fired Me. And it was about uh, workplace monitoring and uh, what's called so-called just-in-time scheduling that makes the lives of fast food workers, retail workers, very hard hard to plan because your schedules are so dynamic. And so I realized that uh, technology was being used to make life very difficult for the little guy. And as I started to think about that, I started to ask myself, how could technology work to go the other way. Um, And so I started researching and learned how big of a problem wage theft was. There was a study done by UIC here in Chicago several years ago that showed how dramatic that problem was. For example, low-wage workers who worked overtime uh, in 67% of the cases didn't get paid accurately that overtime. Uh, and that was just in the previous week. And so other statistics like that really made it clear to me that this was an epidemic, essentially, and there was something that I I just had to do. So that was kind of the motivation. Wage theft is kind of a – I think we need to back up and talk about what wage theft first is because sure. my understanding is that some $30 billion is being denied from American workers every year. And it's a particularly severe problem here in Illinois, particularly for hourly workers. So, Don, Don what is wage theft? How does it occur? And why does it occur? So uh, wage theft can take a few forms. You, as simple as uh, you work 45 hours and you only get paid for 40 or you work 50 hours and you only get paid straight time for all 50 hours instead of overtime for those extra 10 hours over 40. Or you have deductions made from your paycheck because you broke a dish or something like that. Or in the case of tip workers, uh, your boss confiscates some of your tips, which is illegal. So there are a number of ways to do it. Um, Another way is just misclassification, which is another basically saying, 
you're not an employee, you're an independent contractor. And if you're an independent contractor, that means you don't get benefits. So there's a number of ways to do it. Uh, this happens uh, somewhat perversely more likely towards low-wage workers than it does higher-wage workers. So the people who can least afford to lose the money are the ones who are most likely to be victimized. As to, sorry, as to why this happens, uh, think of the businesses that these folks are working in, fast food, retail, low-margin businesses that are very competitive, where labor is a, a fairly high component of the total cost for the business. So they tend to obsess about labor costs. They tend to push the managers of those stores to reduce labor costs. And so there's a point at which people start cutting corners, and they can cut corners with people who don't have any leverage, like low-wage workers who aren't in unions, for example. Yeah, I mean, does this wage theft come from the very top of the company, or do you think it is something that is uh, middle management is doing because they're trying to impress the people above them, sort of managing up? I, it's it's uh, It really does come from the top, because top management, what they'll say is, we want to be a great place to work, people are our most valuable asset, things like that. But then they create quotas and incentives and penalties for middle managers to make sure that they reduce labor costs. Uh, and so what happens is the middle managers are squeezed between top management and what they know is the right thing to do, but a lot of them succumb to that pressure from top management. So top management, executives are talking out of both sides of the mouth. They're, they're saying one thing to the public, but they're pressing their managers to cut labor costs, uh, if at all possible. Now, why do you think there is this obsession with labor costs? Because generally speaking, uh, American workers are the most productive in the world by most metrics, and labor costs are historically low when you compare them to past eras adjusted for inflation. Well, actually, I did some research on this back in a former career at, uh, at Accenture on cost accounting. And our cost accounting systems, and I don't know if they've really caught up yet to this, tend to be very driven by labor costs. And it gets a little bit technical, but uh, to the point where the accounting system will tell you to cut labor costs and that you'll save a lot more money than you actually do. Uh, for example, uh, Starbucks gives its managers a labor budget. Uh, so the managers will forecast, I think I'm going to do this much business next week. Starbucks will come back and say, okay, you get this many labor hours, you get this labor allocation for next week, and that's all you have. So that ripples into the schedule for the people, and uh, what happens is you have – so I was at in D.C. meeting with the Department of Labor last summer, went to a Starbucks before that, that meeting – it was absolutely packed. There were only three workers there. They were going nuts trying to uh, fulfill all the demand. Customers were, or prospective customers, were walking in, looking at the line, walking back out because the line was too long. So there's this obsession with labor costs because it's controllable. It's something I think I can do something about. Many other costs within a business are very hard to control in the short term. In the long term, maybe. But in the short term, there are very few dials to twist, and basically the only one is labor. 
One of the things you mentioned earlier was that technology has had an adverse effect on um, on scheduling and on HR. And in yeah. turn, this has been a, a function of, um, of of wage theft. Can you explain that a little bit? Well, w- one thing that uh, these scheduling systems do is uh, they allow, for example, Chipotle. So Chipotle has a currently has a class action lawsuit involving 10,000 workers uh, alleging wage theft. One of the things that that scheduling system would, was doing was clocking people out even though they were still working. And so without their knowledge. Uh, so they were letting people continue to work even though they had been clocked out. Uh, these electronic systems, many of them also allow the managers to edit quote, their t- workers' timesheets to cut back on the hours after they've reported those hours, again, to meet these labor budgets that I was talking about earlier. And so it's very easy now to change a time card. It used to be, you know, you'd have to go in with some whiteout and change the hours on a physical piece of paper. Now you can just go in electronically and change it, and the worker often doesn't know what's going on. Or they think they there's a problem, but they there's nothing they no evidence that shows that the time card's been changed. So wait a minute. So you're saying that there's a systematic alteration of time cards through data manipulation, which is denying people their fair wages. There can be in cases. Now some companies have configured their systems to not allow that, or to make sure that the worker knows that that time card has been changed. So maybe there was a mistake that an honest mistake that was made. Uh, but those systems often just let the managers make a, a unilateral change without consulting the worker. Do you think this is part of the resistance also to the overtime laws, which require hourly workers to be paid time and a half? Uh, so what do you mean by? Well, a lot of companies uh, are, are strictly limiting employees to uh, certain hourly sets. So they don't qualify, for example, for certain kinds of health insurance or benefits. And in many cases, you know, they can't actually hit overtimes, particularly in the, in the retail and restaurant sectors. Yeah. So Walmart is notorious for this. They basically, they have a policy of scheduling everyone for 32 hours. So they're pretty much no matter what happens, they're not going to get over 40 hours mm-hmm. and not have to be paid overtime or um, – provided benefits. And and all this does basically is, uh, does but does this actually affect the labor pool? Because I mean, th- just to play the devil's advocate here for a second, Walmart sure. might say, well, if I have, you know, 10 people at 32 hours, that means I'm not, I'm actually offering up more jobs to more people because, you know, I'd have to make up those hours of, you know, I'd have to get more 40 hour laborers and I'd hire fewer of them. Right. The, the problem is that uh, a lot of these low wage jobs, so let me come at it from a different perspective, and I'll answer your question. So the, the Berkeley Labor uh, Center has estimated that American taxpayers spend about $150 billion a year in public assistance, so welfare, food stamps, et cetera, to people in working families. Yeah. So think about that, $150 billion to people who have a job but don't make enough to get over the poverty line or, or to – make more than uh, they need to to qualify for public assistance. So we are, in effect, taxpayers are subsidizing these low-wage jobs because either they're part-time or, or the, the actual hourly wage is so low that, again, people aren't making enough money to support themselves, yet 
you can have a lot of people doing that, but now we're we're subsidizing or pay, subsidizing Walmart or these other companies for those lo- low wages or reduced hours. I'm, so, not, I'm not disagreeing with you here, but just yeah. I, want, I want to press this point for a second because yeah. the counter argument to that is that's that actually is not answering what I asked you. What I asked you was companies will say, well, I'm hiring more people and giving more people jobs. There is a system to subsidize and, and have welfare for people. And again, I'm not yeah. disagreeing with you. Yeah. But isn't there a case to be made that a company can say, well, if I'm hiring, again, 10 people at 32 hours, that is giving more people in the community jobs and giving them at least some work as opposed to only giving five people 40-hour jobs? I would say, um, you know, if, if forced to make that choice, I would rather give the people, some people, full-time jobs, get the other people into job training where they can develop some skills, where they can get a better job. I think trapping everybody in this subsistence kind of existence doesn't make a lot of sense. Bad at Sports spoke with Jeffrey Gabriela Molina about her upcoming exhibit at Level 3. Molina, an artist from Venezuela, talked about her process, her paintings, and the joy of participating in group shows. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. I am Ryan Peter Miller, a.k.a. DJ Younger Brother, and I am here in the booth today with Jeffrey Gabriela Molina. Did I say that correctly? Yes. Okay, great. So uh, today we're talking with Jeff Lee about an upcoming show that she has at Level 3. And uh, I'm interested in hearing a little bit about that show. Okay, well, um, so about a month ago, Vincent Uribe, who is the founder of, I think the founder, if not the, definitely the director of Level 3, Uh, contacted me and said, hey, it was very casual. Uh, He did not say who I was going to participate with right away. He just said, would you be interested in a group show? And I said, yeah, absolutely. This is um, something that I really have been looking forward to do in Chicago, participate in more group exhibitions. I have had a number of solo shows, and it was important to me to see my work in the context of some of um, other contemporary artists, whether from Chicago or from other parts of the country. So, And um, I'm looking here, the names of your other uh, cohorts in the show are Curtis Stage, Esther Ruiz, and Matthew Schlegelbaum. Schlegelbaum. Yes. Schlegelbaum. I'm, I'm sorry, I should, I should know that because Matthew and I were in the CAC together a couple years back. Oh. Hi guys, sorry I was late. No, you're not late. You're you're on time with coffee, which is <laughs> different than being late. Fair enough. Um, sorry, well, I was like, it's gonna ask you a question about roses, and then I totally forgot. So, did you know of Level Three? How did you meet Vincent? He just emailed you out of the blue and was like, "Yeah, let's well, do the show." <laughs> no, I didn't know about Level Three before. Um, they have. 
the gallery, I think, has an excellent reputation for not only putting up really great shows, but working with um, a lot of exciting new emerging artists, not only from Chicago, but from other parts of the country. So I did know about Level 3, and I uh, really... I have been wanting to work with them for a while. So they first contacted me to do an interview with me for Artists of the Week. Oh. And I think that was perhaps three months ago or so. And then the next time they contacted me was Vincent directly to ask about the show. And then I said yes right away without <laughs> knowing who I was going to be exhibiting with or... Um, I just trusted, and I trusted in 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 the gallery because yet again I have I've seen so many wonderful shows coming out of that place. So, well, and the artists that you're showing with are from all over the country, but it seems like, I based on at least the few artists whose work I know, it seems like the your work all is really gonna like work well together, and I'm curious how you feel about that because I feel like there are maybe images that are depicted in the paintings of yours that I saw that are in uh like Matthew's work for example but in a very reading from like a very different context yeah so <clears throat> to be honest I am looking forward to uh having an answer to that question because the truth <laughs> is that <laughs> the truth is that uh, so. Vincent has kept us kind of um no not in mystery he of course shared the names of who is participating and when he came to visit my studio which he did a couple of weeks ago he showed me some of the images that were going to be in the show mm -hmm. but that's about it and i am not uh friends with any of these artists when i learned about their names i looked up their work <laughs> and realized that there are some similarities, but there are a lot of differences too, which I think is really interesting. Well, right, and specifically with your work and coming from Venezuela and yeah. like having, I think that perspective seems to kind of make you stand out in the framework of the show. Because I, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like all the other artists are from the U.S., born it in the U.S. seems, well, I don't know about uh, Esther. I don't know about Esther uh, either, actually, but... Definitely Chris Deej and Matthew Sligawong. Yeah. yeah, so I think that mm, the other work is relates to mine in the f sense that it is so it seems so specific about content and about form. It's not very abstract. There is no abstraction, I think, in this show. I think uh, all of us work in a way that things seem to have an end and seem to be very specifically about something. Um, that I come from Venezuela is kind of a thing that makes it still into my work or I think into the aesthetics of my work. But I think that I really work a lot from the present. Mm -hmm. So I think it is something that we will have in common too. The name of the show is um, Wasteland Dream. And it, that is a title taken from a T.S. Eliot poem. And it is a poem about modernity. And it is a poem about the wastefulness, I think, of modernity. Mm -hmm. And I think that we all 
basically talk a little bit about that, about the present time, about mm -hmm. what it is today, about it, it can be about the quotidian or the more general. Like I saw some pictures that seem to be of the streets that are empty and they are very quiet. So all of the work seems also to be very quiet. So you, I don't think you will walk into the gallery thinking, going like, wow, wow. It will be more like, oh. <laughs> Contemplative show. Yeah. <laughs> Brian likes that. I love that, that there's a sound script uh, for people coming into the space. I know. I wish, so I don't know where our little like sound guide is, but it's like the, ah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Rather than the like, Contemplative size as opposed mm -hmm. to exasperation. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. and let's talk a little bit about more about the content of your work and uh, kind of we saw some images on your site and it's actually mm -hmm. awesome. We're lucky to have seen some of the work that's actually going into the show in the studio with us today on its way to its final destination. Yeah. For our listeners, um, it's great. Uh, it's right here in front of us. We can see it and you can't. Um, <laughs> And we're just it's gonna, art. It's in a frame. We're going to lord that over you for the entire duration of the interview. But yeah, tell us a little bit about where you've sourced the imagery for your for okay, your. So I guess paintings. I don't know if you call them paintings or drawings. Yeah, absolutely. Or... Well, it's a mixture of the two. Yeah. And uh, for this show, you will be able to see pieces that I made in 2016 and new work. So in 2016, I discovered a number of things. Um, I work we on linen, did. and I, <laughs> and I, and I, as you said, are these drawings or these paintings? So what I would began to do is I began to draw on linen, and sometimes instead of filling up all the spaces and going back with paint, I just decided to leave the drawings naked and. The reason why is because linen is in itself such a beautiful material. Uh, the fabric is kind of this tan color and it has a texture to it. It has a grain to it, very much like um, wood. And for this reason, I began experimenting in a way that the, the, the paintings began looking more like drawings. And so you will see in the show there is there will be this gigantic rose that my intention was to make a painting of a rose, but you will see more of a diagram of a rose. And and then that is from last year. You will also get to see one of my sculptures, and this is perhaps the only one sculpture that I have that is not a public sculpture. That know that. Not that I have made. I have made a number of them, but they end up staying at the basement of the School of the Art Institute. <laughs> and, yeah. Which so, isn't such a bad place for a sculpture to be. Uh, yeah. I, I guess that's why they friends. just... We, we graduate and we leave them there because there is a very difficult way to take them out. <laughs> um, but there is this bench. Uh, this bench that um, you can use. I, I, I told Vincent I want people to be able to, to use this sculpture to sit on this bench. And the bench is, a, is, a, is made in an awkward way. So if you sit on it, someone will be much higher. Uh, than the other person. It's a bench for two people. And then we will have these two little paintings that are here in the studio that are from <laughs> this year. And what they are is that they are two little piles of clothes that I photograph 
and then I painted and I manipulated with um, some of them with my hands. So I took a number of pictures. I took probably um, 80 pictures and I sometimes go back and take 80 pictures more. And out of those 80 pictures, then I go and I uh, select 40 and then I go and tell my partner can you please select 10 and then I select four and then eventually those are the ones that get made and they're really whimsical they they, they are um I don't like to, I don't like to talk so um perhaps I will let you know I will let you decide whether they are whimsical or not but they are um they're really fun to make <laughs> This week on The Trump Diaries, Trump seethes and tries to tar Hillary Clinton with a flimsy story about a uranium deal. FEMA tells Puerto Rico to cut ties to the Trump-connected power company. Trump's transgender military ban is struck down, and Robert Mueller brings down the hammer as Paul Manafort is charged with conspiracy against the United States. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 279, October 25th. Bloomberg reports that foreign steel imports are up 24% since Trump made his Buy American pledge. A Russian steel company, Avros North America, has won several pipeline contracts, including the Keystone XL. The biggest shareholder in that company is an oligarch and Trump family friend. And Senate Republicans repeal a rule that allowed Americans to sue their banks and credit card companies in class action lawsuits. Senators passed the measure by a tie vote of 50 to 50 with Vice President Mike Pence breaking the tie. The Obama era rule banned Wall Street banks and credit card companies from inserting arbitration clauses into contracts. And FEMA today warned it had significant concerns over how a tiny Montana company won a contract for up to $300 million to rebuild part of Puerto Rico's hurricane-ravaged electrical grid. That company, Whitefish Energy, had only two employees two weeks ago. It is owned by a donor to the Trump campaign. FEMA warned it may refuse to pay for any improper contract between Whitefish and the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority. And Alexander Nix of Cambridge Analytica tried to work with WikiLeaks to find Hillary Clinton's 33,000 deleted emails. Nix, whose firm worked for Trump's campaign, wrote an email to Julian Assange asking if the two could work together to find and release Clinton's emails. Assange replied he didn't want Nix's help. And the FCC will roll back media consolidation rules designed to preserve media diversity in local markets. FCC Chairman Ajit Pai's plan would eliminate a 1975 rule that prevented a single company from owning a TV station and newspaper in the same market. The FCC could also eliminate a rule that prevents TV stations from merging the same market in order to ensure a variety of perspectives on the air. That move is seen as a gift to the Sinclair Tribune merger, which aims to make a coast-to-coast conservative broadcasting network in local markets. And Trump spent $1.75 million in furniture for the White House, an office is tied to it according to government records. That includes $17,000 for custom rugs and $12,800 for a custom conference table from a company that made one for Richard Nixon in 1969. Day 280, October 26th. Trump declared the opioid epidemic a public health emergency today, but not a national emergency. The difference is critical as the latter would have unlocked federal funding through FEMA's disaster relief funds. Jeff Sessions said that people should, quote, just say no to opioids, while Trump added that a really big, great advertising will keep kids off drugs. And the House passed its budget blueprint. No Democrats voted for the budget, which passed with an unexpectedly close 216 to 212 vote. In particular, congressmen from high-tax states are concerned the GOP may do away with the credits for state and local taxes, which are critical in New York, Illinois, and California. The legislation will allow Republicans to now pass tax reform and add as much as $1.5 trillion to the deficit over the next decade without any Democratic votes. 
and the GAO is investigating Trump's voter fraud commission. Three Democratic senators asked the watchdog office to look at how federal funds are being used, how it's protecting voter information, and how it is following regulations. And Trump has ignored an October 1st deadline to impose new sanctions on Russia, in part because Secretary of State Rex Tillerson dissolved the office that implements them. The State Department issued guidance on how to implement sanctions only shortly after Bob Corker and other Senate Republicans pledged to find out if the White House was intentionally delaying them. Trump signed the bill in early August, which imposed new sanctions and limited authority to lift them. The coordinator for sanctions policy office was eliminated. Just one mid-level official is now responsible for coordinating the implementation of various sanctions across the State Department and other government agencies. And Trump Trump said the widow of Sergeant David Johnson killed in Niger must be wrong in her recollections because he has, quote, one of the greatest memories of all time. Trump said there was no way he could have stumbled on Sergeant David Johnson's name during his condolence call with Maisha Johnson because he is very intelligent and went to an Ivy League college. He added that staff gave him a chart with the Green Beret's name on it. Day 281, October 27th. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said on Friday that all the women who have accused Trump of sexual harassment are lying. The question was posed during a White House briefing. At least 16 women have accused Trump of sexually harassing them through the course of the campaign. Last week, during a press conference in the Rose Garden, Trump called those accusations fake news. And the New York Times reports that the memo Russian lawyer Natalie Vitalyshenko brought to Trump Tower meeting was coordinated with the Kremlin. She claimed she was an independent actor when she sat down with Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort. In the months before the meeting, the lawyer discussed allegations that Democratic donors were guilty of financial fraud and tax evasion with Russia's prosecutor general, Yuri Wyshenko. Trump personally directed the Justice Department to lift an FBI informant's gag order so they could testify to Congress about Russia's attempt to gain influence in the uranium industry in the United States during the Obama administration. The move is unusual as there is usually a firewall between justice and the White House. The request is also seen as a political attempt to muddy the waters and distract from the Mueller investigation. The deal Obama approved gave Moscow control of a large swath of American uranium, but the FBI had evidence showing Russian nuclear officials had routed millions of dollars to the U.S. designed to benefit Bill Clinton's charitable foundation while Hillary Clinton was serving as the Secretary of State. Hillary Clinton was not involved or aware of their view. Also, the uranium cannot be exported. Trump claimed it's, quote, commonly agreed that he didn't collude with Russia. He accused Hillary Clinton of working with the Kremlin, amid reports that Clinton and the DNC paid for the dossier of accusations about Trump and his ties to Russia. Trump tweeted that after many months of costly looking, there was no collusion between Russia and Trump. Was collusion with HC. Day 282, October 28th. Governor Ricardo Rossello of Puerto Rico has asked the governing board of the Puerto Rico Electrical Power Authority to immediately cancel its contract with Whitefish Energy. The decision came two days after FEMA expressed significant concerns about how Whitefish, a small Montana company, won the $300 million contract. The owners of Whitefish were Trump campaign donors. And a federal grand jury has approved the first charges in the investigation led by special counsel Robert Mueller. The charges are still sealed under orders from a federal judge. Anyone charged will be taken into custody on Monday. It is unclear who is being charged or what the charges are. Mueller was appointed in May to lead the investigation into Russian meddling in the 2016 election. Day 283, October 29th. Trump continued to seethe, tweeting late on Sunday that, quote, never seen such Republican anger and unity as I have concerning the lack of investigation on Clinton-made fake dossier. Now $12 million, the uranium to Russia deal, the 33,000-plus deleted emails, the Comey fix, and so much more. Instead, they look at phony Trump-Russia collusion, which doesn't exist. The Dems are using this terrible and bad-for-our-country witch hunt for evil politics, but the R's are now fighting back like never before. There's so much guilt by Democrats Clinton, and now the facts are pouring out. Do something. Day 284, October 30th. 
Former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort was charged today with conspiracy against the United States, with the government arguing that the president's one-time top lieutenant was secretly a highly paid agent for pro-Russian foreign interests. Manafort and his associate Rick Gates have pled not guilty to a 12-count indictment that also alleges they laundered $18 million. A separate indictment and guilty plea of another advisor, George Papadopoulos, detailed extensive efforts to connect the Trump campaign to Russia. Prior to the release of the information that Papadopoulos had flipped, Trump tweeted, quote, sorry, but this is years ago before Paul Manafort was part of Trump campaign, but why aren't crooked Hillary and the Dems the focus? No collusion. Trump did not tweet since the news about Papadopoulos broke. The indictment significantly upped the pressure on Trump, who spent the day furiously tweeting about Hillary Clinton, arguing again without proof that his campaign did not collude with Russia. Legal experts say the indictment on Manafort will be especially difficult to beat, and that Manafort faces extensive jail time if he doesn't take a plea deal. Legal experts also say Papadopoulos' plea is especially damaging to Trump, as it signals he is cooperating with special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. One senior Republican in close contact with top staffers of the White House said, quote, the walls are closing in. Everyone is freaking out. And a federal judge in D.C. has partially blocked the Trump-proposed transgender military ban, saying the policy does not appear to be supported in any facts. U.S. District Court Judge Colleen Calarcatelli found a group of transgender service members seeking to have the ban declared unconstitutional would win on their merits. Calarcatelli did allow us to stand a part of the proposal that would have barred military health funds from being used for sex reassignment surgery. And the military judge in charge of determining Bo Bergdahl's sentence for abandoning his post in Afghanistan said that Trump's incendiary remarks may lessen Bergdahl's punishment. Trump called Bergdahl a, quote, dirty, rotten traitor both on the campaign trail and as a sitting president. Army Colonel Jeffrey Nance told the court that Bergdahl's attorneys demonstrated legitimate concerns about the impact Trump's comments have had on the proceedings, which the defense says cast doubts on the military's ability to mete out justice. And the FBI is now investigating the canceled $300 million contract to rebuild Puerto Rico's power grid. The firm Whitefish Energy is owned by a major Trump donor and also has ties to the Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke. That news came on the same day that UN experts faulted Trump's response to the devastation on the island, calling it ineffective and lagging far behind other evidence in Florida and Texas. Day 285, October 31st. Trump continued to attempt to try and deflect attention from yesterday's bombshell indictments, belittling the campaign worker who has pled guilty to lying to the FBI and trying to make the case that the Democrats were just as bad. Trump tweeted, quote, the fake news is working overtime. As Paul Manafort's lawyer said, there was no collusion and events mentioned took place long before he came to the campaign. Few people knew the young low-level volunteer named George was already proven to be a liar. Check the Dems. Tony Podesta stepped down from his lobbying firm after coming under investigation by Robert Mueller. Tony Podesta, the brother of DNC power broker John Podesta and the Podesta Group, had worked on a campaign with Paul Manafort to promote the Ukraine's image in the West. The Podesta Group and Mercury Public Affairs were the two unnamed companies in the grand jury indictment of Manafort and Rick Gates, which referred to them as Company A and Company B. Podesta said in his statement, it is impossible to run a public affairs firm while you are under attack by Fox News and the right-wing media. Trump also tweeted about Podesta saying, quote, the biggest story yesterday, the one that has the Dems in a dither, is Podesta running from his firm. What he know about crooked Dems is earth-shattering. He and his brother could drain the swamp, which would be yet another campaign promise fulfilled. Fake news week. Trump is attempting to discredit the investigation and muddy the waters, with some suggesting he may seek now to fire special counsel Robert Mueller. His recent actions include reviving a made-up scandal that Clinton approved a deal for a Russian nuclear agency to gain access to U.S. uranium extraction rights in exchange for kickbacks, and a bizarre claim that the Clinton campaign, which played through the Steele dossier, actually colluded with Russia to interfere in the election. That would have you believe that Clinton colluded with Russia to cost herself the election, and of course these claims are utterly false. 
Russian agents disseminated inflammatory posts that reached 126 million users on Facebook, published more than 131,000 messages on Twitter, and uploaded over 1,000 videos to Google's YouTube service. Those details were sent to Congress ahead of hearings this week into how third parties use social networks to influence millions of Americans before the 2016 presidential election. Just 127 million people voted in the 2016 election. Day 286, November 1st. Trump has become increasingly concerned the Mueller probe could be moving beyond Russia into an investigation of his personal dealings. Two people familiar with the president's thinking said. Trump believes he is being tarnished by his former aides and is also laying the groundwork to fire Mueller. He is being goaded by an aggressive right-wing campaign on Fox News, The Daily Caller, and Breitbart to do so. Trump dismissed Papadopoulos as a liar, their coffee boy, and just a young, low-level volunteer after Papadopoulos cut a plea deal with prosecutors. Trump called Papadopoulos a proven liar despite having called him an excellent guy in March 2016. Another staffer called Papadopoulos a coffee boy. However, the documents unsealed by the grand jury show that Papadopoulos had regular contact with Sam Clovis, the Trump campaign co-chair, Corey Lewandowski, the campaign manager, and Paul Manafort. In a related story, Carter Page has admitted that Russia, quote, came up in his emails with Trump. And White House Chief of Staff John Kelly refused to apologize for lying about the African-American congresswoman who spoke up on behalf of the widow of a slain soldier. In an interview on Laura Ingram's show, Kelly also remarked that the lack of ability to compromise led to the Civil War. A new Gallup poll taken on Tuesday showed a sharp drop in Trump's approval rating. Just 33% of voters approve of Trump's job performance. 60% disapprove. Another poll of just Trump voters and supporters showed that 79% think he should remain in office even if collusion with Russia is proven, and 75% claim the entire Russia story is fake news. These are the Trump Diaries. Hitting Left spoke with Peter Kuttner and Floyd Webb about the state of the Chicago film scene, recent screenings, and the city's growing pains as it seeks to become Hollywood East. Hitting Left airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Now, just, a, just a quick explanation uh, for those uh, who, who may not know. But when you talk about cinema verite, this, up until then, kind of documentary films were uh, uh, Usually narrated, there was a voice. Right. There was a voiceover who'd be telling the story. Very horrible voice. And then in the '60s, there was this kind of this development of a of a notion that the story could tell itself. Uh, that by by let the let the subjects of the documentary speak really basically speak for themselves. Well, there was that as well as technological advances that really made a difference, and some of them became uh, 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 came about because of the war, because of the guerrilla war. They couldn't run through the jungle with the cameras and recorders that they had that needed to be plugged to each other. And when they figured out a way to uh, break, cut the umbilical cord, that made it a lot more mobile. Uh, and that made that was part of it as well. There was yeah. a lot of moving around. The early documentaries were a little sedentary and. Uh, on tripods and things. Well, this allowed you, they had lighter cameras, allowed you to put it on your shoulder and run around. And I found that pretty interesting. So I chased down this crew. And I'm told uh, if you go to the Chelsea Hotel in New York, you'll find them. They were making a film about Norman Mailer. So that sounded like a good thing to do. Uh, I got to the Chelsea Hotel uh, on, I think it's October 26th, 1967, to find that the crew was gone uh, and they were following Norman Mailer to Washington to the October 27 or 28, maybe it was, uh, uh, demonstration at the Pentagon. 
the one that uh, the Fugs and Allen Ginsberg. They wanted to levitate the We're going to levitate the building. Uh, I skipped a little part. And they did, as far as I remember. <laughs> At least my, in my mind, they did. Um, and certainly in their <laughs> Moving minds, right along they did. there. Yeah. <laughs> but I had not been uh, 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 to a large demonstration before. And I said, well, you know, I'll check this out because wars are bad. Uh, and maybe I can find my guys and, and go to work for them. Uh, well, the fact is I, I didn't find my guys uh, there. But if you read Mailer's uh, report, Armies of the Night, when he talks about getting out of jail, he was arrested. He says, ah, the first uh, friendly faces I see in four days are my film crew. And had I been one day earlier, I would have been on that film crew. But the fact is it was probably more important that I went to the demonstration on my own wearing a sport coat um, and was really taken up. People with thought it. you were a narc, I think. But quite possibly. I mean, half of my uh, my high school football team became Chicago cops, so it's possible that uh, I could have been. But I chose another direction. Uh, and the direction I chose that day was to break through. And I don't – I'm imagining at least you were there. I don't know uh, whether well, you, you know, were Well, you know, it's interesting okay, – everything's kind of interesting to me. But October of 1967, so that's 50 years ago uh, this month, mm-hmm. was the protest at the Pentagon, was the Oakland uh, Stop the Draft Week demonstrations, which is where I, which is where I was that October. Uh, it's also the 50th anniversary of the passing of uh, Woody Guthrie and of Che Guevara. So October of 1967 was, uh, that was, big. was, qu- was quite a month uh, uh, for right, those so of went, us around. So you went to the In fact, it's today. It's just, if it's the 27th, yeah. that's today, isn't yeah. it? So yeah. there was a, they, uh, without describing the whole thing, there was a, an excited push through the young soldiers with bayonets set, and we found ourselves uh, between the, the, the guards and the Pentagon. We were actually up on the, on the uh, plateau of the Pentagon, and were given a choice to get arrested or not. Uh, if you didn't want to get arrested, you rappelled down some ropes and went home, which is what, <laughs> which is what I did, uh, and caught up with, uh, with my crew later on and went to work with them. Uh, we finished the Mailer film. We did a film on Sonny Rollins uh, and then uh, Melina Mercury. Uh, so I decide that I'm going to stay in New York uh, and I'm looking for work. I'm couch surfing uh, and reading The Village Voice. Uh, and I see in The Village Voice uh, that uh, there's going to be a film about that demonstration. And I go to see it. And as I'm walking out, uh, a hippie sort of looking guy, uh, I may have still been wearing my sport coat, I'm not sure, but this hippie looking guy. Uh, engages me in talk, and he finds out that I know something about film, and he says, well, you have to come join us. We made this film. Uh, We're a group called The Newsreel. Uh, And The Newsreel turns out to be a collective of mainly uh, white men and women, uh, radicals, uh, making films about the movement. Uh, By the time I got to them, they'd already made films about the anti-war movement, the anti-draft movement, uh, the women's movement, and had the film on the Black Panthers. Uh, Which we in SDS were showing all over the place, and the people in communities were showing up on bedspreads in the mm-hmm. back of uh, tenements and things like that. Yeah. That's what brought me back to Chicago, and that's how I met 
how I met you. Uh, who were the, the, uh, the names uh, of, those, of those early uh, New York newsreel people? Um, Marvin Fishman, Norman Fruchter, Robert Kramer, John Douglas. And many of them really went on to become, or at least a few, went on to become quite noted. Well, certainly Kramer. Yeah, Kramer became. And I have to to say, because he remains a good friend of mine, he lives in Budapest now, Alan Siegel. Uh, But the ones who were talking to me most were uh, Fruchter and Kramer uh, and Bob Macover, who had made a film in Newark about the uh, organizing project there. That Tom Hayden was involved. And Tom Hayden was involved, which was important because, uh, unbeknownst to me, because I had left Chicago in my re- literally in my rearview mirror, uh, and I'm not even sure I knew the uh, 1968 convention was going to be here, uh, they knew, and they said, we're bringing hundreds of filmmakers to Chicago, which they did. And they said, go back to Chicago and lay the infrastructure for us. I said, well, I know about the labs and where to get the equipment, but I don't know about managing an office, getting an o- anything like that. They said, we have some friends there. And they scribbled down three names. <clears throat> and I shoved them in uh, my pocket, came back to Chicago, found an apartment, found the note, and it was Tom Hayden, Rennie Davis, and Dave Dellinger. And I go down to their office, and they... Because of Fructor and the newsreel, they give me a desk and a and a closet to stack the films to uh, to distribute, and I am the fly on the wall uh, uh, in the national mobilization to end the war in Vietnam. But didn't get indicted. You were you were part of the unindicted. I was. You're part of the unindicted. I was a co-conspirator. Co-conspirator. That's true. But let's use the Panther film as an example. I had the print of the Panther film in Chicago. Which Panther film is this? This is the one that was called. It was called. Uh, it was. Called it was the Black Off- Panther movie. Was I remember it? Is well, actually, we we in in that's kind of revised history. It was known as Off the Pig. Off yeah. the Pig. That's right. And yeah. that's right. and through that, because I had it, uh, and SDS wanted to use it, and the Panthers wanted to use it. I developed relationships in both places, and uh, not only did I meet people like uh, Michael Klonsky. I met Fred Hampton. Uh, and both, uh, both those men, as well as their comrades, really influenced uh, my political thinking. And by the time the, the summer is over, I now have a little more understanding of what's going on. Yeah, uh, Floyd. I want to get to you. Uh, mm-hmm. I want to get back to you now. So, mm-hmm. uh, after Daughters of the Dust, uh, uh, well, let's go back right. to this a minute because okay. you know, because this is interesting. Because like uh, the way I found out about Newsreel, like I didn't know, um, you know, like at this time you're talking about, I'm like 14 years old, and this is when I hook up. That's just when I'm like fighting my way through this quagmire of the anti-war movement with the PLP and the Trotskyites and. All of these, you know, all of these different factions at each other's throats, you know, and trying to figure out what's going on in the left. Um, I discover a film, I guess it's in early 68, called Finally Got the News. Ah, about Detroit. You know, about Black Workers Congress, people that I continued to work with from that point on until the point that I, you know, met, uh, you know, uh, I met uh, General Baker and, and ended up, uh, you know, going up to Detroit a lot. <laughs> The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. 
The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpin' Theme, Background and Interstitial Music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Thank you.